Thank you so much, Ron, and everybody listening in on ACB radio and by our Zoom meetings and over our live streams. This is Tony Stevens with the American Council of the Blind, and we're jumping into a leadership live segment right now as we speak. So, hey, but, uh, Tony. Thanks, everybody. And there's my favorite co host. <laughs> Yay. So, yeah, well done. Uh, well done, everybody. It's great to hear familiar voices with Eric and others, and, and nice to hear some new voices, but um, great job to to Ron and, and Clark for getting that panel set up. So, all right, we are back, I think. Yes, sir. Temporarily apologize for that <laughs> inconvenience. Uh, we'll be getting things started back up again. We're over ACB radio, I think as well. Was that, uh, who was that I heard streaming? Is that Larry or who was that? Did I hear a voice in the distance on the stream? That's Tyson. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tyson. For I'm going to promote patty she's got her hand all up right. patty's got up come on up to the thing again patty all right we had a little glitch there so we appreciate everybody's patience hopefully people are coming back in there the she comes are people starting to come back into the room Cindy? they are yes oh, wonderful yeah well, welcome back everybody getting people back a little fire drill there if you will hey patty Ooh, yeah hey there we go how are you all we are good. We apologize. Things just kind of got cut off there for a minute. So all of a sudden, we all that's just the way got technology likes to work sometimes. But we are back yeah. and we are live. Am I hearing an echo or is it just me? Are you all hearing me twice? I think I'm having yeah. a loop back, but I'll worry about that on my other. So, um, hey, Patty, welcome back. How are you? Just fine. Me, How are you? It's we're supposed to get 61 on Wednesday. So please tell me that's in Louisville right now waiting to move east. Um, it it's not 60 yet, but it's warmer. It's, it's tolerable. Did the snow now. stop at least? Oh yeah. It's in fact, oh, it's almost all gone. Oh good. Um, it's, it's, slow you know, places now. that oh, have right. shadows is the only place yeah. that where it is. Well, We're getting a little bit of great. snow here still in Virginia and Baltimore and Maryland, but it's moving out as well. I think Debbie just joined us back again. Hey, welcome back Debbie. And thanks yeah. to Tyson for getting us back on the stream. Oh my gosh. Apologize to everybody for that inconvenience. Let's do a, a, a quick mini mall minute since we got Patty on here. Hey, Patty, what do we Hi. got going on right uh, now? So, uh, our we, we've still got our 10% off. Our double deal today is 10% off mass. And if you spend over $75, it's 10% off of your order. And Excellent. I've got one of the white masks on right now. It has ACB across your mouth. So, you can put ACB where your mm -hmm. mouth is. Um, and then, and then we have our polo shirts, um, that the silk touch polo shirts, we do not have many left. We only have a few left and they have the logo on the left chest. Uh, we do have some of the old logo and the new logo left They're $18, only a few. So you might want to get your order in. We also got have my light blue one here. I still got from conference. I'm holding up in front oh, of the camera cool. now. With the, uh, <laughs> they're, they're great in the summertime. Yeah, so. we don't have too many colors left. There, yeah. There's, you know, I'll sell this one on eBay if anybody wants it. Oh, <laughs> now, now, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Anything to make a dollar here at ACB. We oh. also have our four port charger, and and I and this is an example. This is uh my daughter's. It has five ports on it. It has our logo on it. It stands up on your table, and then it has a four foot cord that also goes to your um, outlet. So it's not right. something that has to be right up on top of it. You can put it on your desk. And I got one more thing. These are the Ooh. cute little guys. These right here 
are phone stands where they oh, are so cute. Uh, <laughs> life's you know, you're, you get a little stress uh-huh. there. Also, yeah. stress balls. But these guys, they're I, I could eyes use that a few minutes out. ago. when the lights went out right so these are uh, they're $12 and there's red and blue and as you you know you are I'm trying to get it in the camera right so as you squeeze it their eyes just pop out as you're using this you know or your phone can sit in the stand let me see if I can get to show that correctly Um, it can stay sit in the stand and it holds it up so you can leave it on the table or, you know, if you get, if you're doing video, it's a good way to mm-hmm. hold your phone and keep it there so that you don't have to move around, mm-hmm. uh, you yeah. know, your phone and get it. Right. Once you get it right, Thanks. it can stay there. So those are $12. So, and all right. the, the numbers you can call is 877-630-7190 or 877 <laughs> Mall or 877-969-6255. That's great. Give us a call. Well, thank you, Patty. And as, as we're you, having Patty. our panelists for the next session, uh, we're, we're moving back into in. general session now and our yep. panelists are coming in. So stand by. Uh, this is the Leadership Live you're listening to. We're going to segue into Clark Rockfall in just a few minutes. But after that little scare That's there right. for a minute, Debbie. Well, Tony, I just was going to, I was starting to ask you, if would you ride in a self-driving vehicle? Oh, of course I would. I, I am too. I am feeling much safer. And I mean, yeah, you're asking someone who's been hit by by five people in my oh, life. I've been uh-huh. hit five times yeah. by cars, yeah. two where I've yeah. been thrown over hoods. So, oh, no, um, Ooh, how you know, awful. and to the yeah. curb. So I am all in favor of. Me uh, too of something that's not a person trying to text and drive at the same time. I am not a fan of distracted drivers. And, and, you know, I, I worked a lot when I was doing advocacy before in that space, the autonomous vehicle space, and it was, <clears throat> um, you know, it, it's exciting to think what they're able to do. And when you look at the data about how many hours they've already been testing these cars compared to, you know, regular cars on the street. Um, I, I'm, I'm not afraid of them at all. I'm excited. No, so. me too. And yeah. I want one. I don't want to just like use one or find one. I want my own. Oh, someday. Someday. Yeah, someday. I can't say more of that or else we'll have to pay royalties. Um, so I, just real quick, I want to make an MMS pl- plug if we can, because uh-huh. uh, we're still doing the drawing for a free television for those that uh, are signing up for our monthly. A little bit can go a long way. So if you give $10 or more through MMS, and that's our monthly monetary support program. So we're very thankful for everybody that's been signing up during this conference. Uh, you give a little bit, uh, and it goes a long way, you know, month by month by month. So we're thankful for everybody for supporting us there. You can email askacbmms at gmail.com. That's askacbmms at gmail.com. Or you can call 202 202- Seven four three zero seven five five again two zero two seven four three zero seven five five and that'll be a, a Google voicemail so you'll get the 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 usual sort of uh, friendly voice asking you to say your name and then it'll put you in a voicemail um, until we can try to figure out how to get it set up so you can hear uh, George's wonderful <laughs> voice the chair of our committee a co chair of our committee so thanks to Jean and Jordan for leading Jean and George for leading that leading that I can't talk uh-huh. <laughs> it's great oh Debbie take it me away. Great. <laughs> Let's go have some pizza. <laughs> You've gotten my yeah, attention, but we can't have See pizza now. until we've heard some some exciting uh, words of 
of, uh, of what's going on in the voting rights space and what else we have for the next hour and a half planned. Uh, the clerks yeah. got queued up, so we're excited for that All as right. our guests are uh, beginning to still file their way into the uh, onto That's our virtual good. stage. Clark, are you imagine. ready? Are we yeah. taking too much time? Are you ready for us to vacate? <laughs> he hasn't come in here and we thrown something. We have our guests here. All right. Those folks are right. filing in the room. Great. You're doing Wonderful. such a great job today, Clark. Thank you so much. Well, thank you yeah. to everyone at ACB Radio for your background mm. support. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Okay, well, I guess I will mute and uh, let you take over. Yeah. And I'm going to yeah, see if gonna, I can we're gonna resurrect We're going to go in our little control room and again. listen and yeah. best of luck and uh, way to go. So. Okay, yeah. All Clark, right. Thanks, Clark, really. are thank you missing you so anybody? Because I do have a hand raised in the audience, so I'm not sure. Are you missing any panelists? We are checking panelists right now. Thank you. All right, we have Donald Palmer, Lisa Schur and Douglas Cruza. Okay, so we're still, still waiting on Lisa and Doug to join us here. And whoever is host, if you could make Sheila a co-host, please. And Commissioner Palmer, can you hear me? And there's one of your panelists. I can hear you, yes. Great. Welcome. And I think we just had uh, Doug Cruza join as well. Okay. And is Lisa on as well? We are on. Yes. Okay, great. So it sounds like we're good to go. Thank you, Kelly. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the closing general session of ACB's virtual 2021 legislative seminar. Welcome back to the general session after our breakout tracks on transportation with fascinating presentations from the Department of Transportation, our airline industry panel, and then the, the fascinating conversation that Ron Brooks moderated with the autonomous vehicle industry. And then over on live stream in breakout B, the panels on education, rehab, and services for older Americans moderated by Debbie Grubb, Doug Powell, and Jeff Tom. Thank you all for your support in continuing these policy conversations and really driving the ball forward. For our final general session of the day, we decided to bring everyone back together in one place for a conversation uh, near and dear to all of our hearts and really building off of the advocacy work that every ACB member and every ACB affiliate did in 2020 and for many years before that as well, but especially highlighted and made it more important than ever uh, during the pandemic this past year. We're joined today by Vice Chair of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, Commissioner Donald Palmer. And Commissioner Palmer has previously served as the Director of Elections for the state of Florida as well as a secretary on the Board of Elections for the state of Virginia. Commissioner Palmer, welcome. Welcome, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I will uh, turn it over to you to share with our members and our audience about the Election Assistance Commission and to launch into some of the exciting things and the recent research data that you all have gathered. Sure, thanks. Uh, I'd like to thank the American Council of the Blind for organizing this discussion. And, and thank you, Clark, uh, for the introduction. 
I know through your history, the ACB has worked diligently to promote a quality of opportunity for blind and visually impaired people. And this includes the right to a private and independent vote. Uh, I'd like to recognize your recent efforts advocating for the accessible electronic ballot delivery systems. In the 2020 election, this work empowered voters who are blind and visually impaired, not only in the fall, but I'm sure will be in, the, in elections for years to come. There's been a dramatic increase in the utilization of electronic ballot delivery over the past year, and we look forward to a discussion on this innovative voting technology on how the EAC may be involved in future voting system component testing and non-voting system testing. Around this time last year, the EAC had hosted the elections disability accessibility and a security forum and the ACB was an important part of that event. Although we're not able to meet in person, we're equally excited this year to discuss the accessibility of the 2020 elections and how election officials and voters plan for the pandemic which we all over have been overcoming. This week, we, uh, the AC released the Disability and Voting Accessibility in the 2020 Election Study. Um, Rutgers University did a great job with this project and we're very pleased uh, that they are joining the meeting today to review those results and highlight some of their important findings. Before we get to the study, I'd like to highlight some of the background of the AC and how we're committed to accessibility issues. As you know, EAC was established by the 2002 Help America Vote Act, and we are an independent nonpartisan commission committed to protecting the right to an independent private vote. As I mentioned in HAVA, uh, I'd like to cite some of the language uh, that's in that statute because it explicitly codifies the right of voters with for voters with disabilities. It talks about uh, the voting system shall be accessible for individuals with disabilities, including non-visual accessibility for the blind and visually impaired in a manner that provides the same opportunity for access and participation, including privacy and independence, as for other voters, end quote. And so since the passage of HAVA, election officials have worked across the country to implement the promise of that statute for a private and independent vote. Three of the six duties assigned to the EAC by HAVA cite assisting people with disabilities as a primary responsibility. And so through our policy initiatives, grants, and funding for special efforts, the EAC promotes HAVA's accessible requirements to assist election officials and directly voters with disabilities. And the commissioners are committed to doing more at the EAC in support of state and local officials that serve voters with disabilities during the voting process. Even though the pandemic created unique challenges in 2020, there are many lessons to be learned. Elections are holding, officials are holding elections even as the pandemic continues. However, we hope to return to normal soon and, and what we've learned over the last year can continue to inform voters how they can participate in the process. As we entered the 2020 election, the AC commissioned Rutgers University's Dr. Lisa Schur and Dr. Doug Cruz to complete a comprehensive national study on accessibility. In my opinion, this EAC-sponsored research provides valuable insight into improvements that have been made in voting accessibility, but also identifies areas that need our ongoing scrutiny. We're pleased to see that voting difficulties among people with disabilities declined markedly from 12, 2012 to 2020, the study also found, however, that voters who are blind or visually impaired still face significant obstacles 
when voting by mail or in person. The results will be crucial to the AC as we evaluate how best to support election officials and the critical mission of ensuring equal access to the ballot. As my fellow commissioners and I speak with election officials across the US, we are constantly reminded of their hard work to make sure elections are accessible, secure, accurate, and accountable. Although there are still obstacles, we are pleased to see that in an especially difficult election year, access to the ballot for voters with disability has improved. We greatly appreciate the meticulous and thorough work conducted by Professor Schur and Cruz. Their in-depth research covers numerous data points and trends in accessible voting. Their results have helped the EAC identify public policy areas that we intend to tackle in the coming months. It's my pleasure to, to introduce Dr. Alicia Schur and Dr. Douglas Cruz. They are the co-directors of the Program for Disability Research at Rutgers University and leading experts on the study of voting accessibility for peoples with disabilities. Professor Sharon Cruz, I will turn the presentation over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can we share a screen? It looks like we can. Let's see. Bigger. And all this is Clark. The data that Douglas and Lisa are going to share has been added to the ACB event website along with the agenda in a Word document as well for your reference. Great. So we're going to do a little bit of a, a tag team presentation. I'm going to start and then turn it over to Doug. So the questions we were looking at are, what were the voting experiences of people with disabilities in the 2020 elections, and especially those with vision impairments? How did these compare to the experiences of voters without disabilities? Has there been progress in voting accessibility since 2012? And how did the COVID pandemic affect voting experiences? So to answer these and other questions, the EAC asked Rutgers University to design and coordinate a national survey of voting eligible citizens with and without disabilities following the 2020 elections. The national sample that uh, we came up with is based on randomly selected citizens eligible to vote in the 2020 elections. The survey was designed to update and expand on a 2012 post-election survey that we, that we worked on that was also funded by the EAC. Both surveys were conducted by SSRS, which is a well-respected survey polling company and it's a member of the American Association of Public Opinion Research. The, the disability measures we used were based on six question set used by the Census Bureau, plus a seventh broad question to capture other types of disability. We ended up with a total sample size of, of everyone, all the participants of 2,569 people. The people with disabilities made up 1,782. Um, in that disability sample, 12% have vision impairments and 1.4% are totally blind. The non-disability sample is made up of 787 people. Uh, the citizens with disabilities were oversampled so that we could get a large enough sample for reliable estimates and so that we could do breakdowns by different types of disability and also by demographics. The total sample 
is more than twice the size of typical national phone surveys of 1,000 people. So the results we came up with should generalize well to disability and non-disability populations. The uh, full report has 32 detailed statistical tables, and we're not going to go into all of these here. Um, the, the following slides highlight some of the key results we found with a focus on people with vision impairments. <clears throat> so among people with vision impairments, voter turnout was 11.6% lower than for people without disabilities of the same age. Uh, very roughly, um, we have probably, there are probably about 2 million voters with vision impairments in 2020, but we will have a better estimate in April when we get the full census data on turnout. Close to half, 52% of voters used mail ballots in 2020, and that was similar to other people with disabilities. And one third of male voters, the people who use mail-in voting, 35%, and in-person voters, 31%, either had difficulties or needed assistance in voting. Looking at age and vision impairment, people 65 or older were 42% uh, of people with disabilities and 51% of people with vision impairments. Among people with vision impairments who were 65 or older, 52% voted by mail, 39% had difficulties or needed assistance voting by mail, and 35% had difficulties or needed assistance voting in a polling place. Among all people with disabilities, voter turnout was 7% lower than for people without disabilities of the same age. And this points towards a continuing disability gap in voter turnout that we found in past elections. But, and this is a big caveat, uh, the disability gap may have narrowed in 2020. And again, we will have better sense of this when we receive the Census Bureau's voting and registration supplement data set, which will be released in April. So voting difficulty, here's the good news, voting difficulties among all people with disabilities declined markedly from 2012 to 2020, from 26% to 11%. However, about one in nine voters with disabilities reported difficulties voting in 2020, and this is double the rate of people without disabilities. Uh, sure, I guess I'll take over. Um, we, we looked at methods of voting, uh, about half of voters with disabilities voted at a polling place in 2020, compared to 56% of voters without disabilities. Now, of course, there, there, there was a big shift to using mail ballots last year. Um, the shift to using mail ballots, um, interestingly, was identical for voters with and without disabilities. There's a 28 percentage point increase for both. So huge increases, identical for voters with and without disabilities. One quarter of voters with and without disabilities 24% and 25% voted early at a polling place. And interestingly, close to three-fourths of voters with disabilities voted with the mail ballot or early in person in 2020, meaning that only one-fourth voted on election day in a polling place. Um, that three-fourths number represents a significant increase from 2012, and it's higher than the two-thirds of non-disabled voters who did so in 2020. Um, we asked about a variety of difficulties that people may have faced voting both in person and, and with a mail ballot. Among people with disabilities who voted in person in 2020, 18% reported difficulties compared to 10% of people without disabilities. 
the disability number is down from 30% in 2012. So there's improvement within polling places. The difficulties are most common among people with vision impairments. 24% uh, had difficulties voting in a polling place and cognitive impairments, 30%. So one, as both Don and Lisa said, you know, there's been improvement, um, which is good news. Our polling place is actually more accessible in 2020. Um, we, we estimate that about half of the decline in difficulties voting in the polling place for people with disabilities since 2012 appears due to progress in making polling places more accessible. And that's, you know, that's a great testament to, uh, to election officials, the EAC, disability organizations, everyone who's been trying to make polling places more accessible. The biggest declines in difficulty were in difficulty reading or seeing the ballot, which of course is a big problem for a lot of people with vision impairments and then difficulty understanding how to vote or use the voting equipment. Those are the biggest declines. There are also some possible declines in difficulty in finding or getting to the polling place and waiting in line, but those, those declines were within the survey's margin of error. The other half of the overall decline, as I said, about half the decline seems to be due to real progress. The other half of the overall decline is tied to a change in composition of polling place voters. As those who expected the most difficulties switch to mail ballots. The uh, mail ballots present fewer problems, fewer difficulties, fewer reported difficulties in, in voting, but we, we do find that among those using mail ballots, 5% of voters with disabilities had difficulty using the ballot compared to 2% of voters without disabilities. The group that really sticks out here is the one that ACD represents. 22% of voters with vision impairments had difficulties with a mail ballot. Um, that's either reading and filling it out or, or returning it. We also asked whether you needed assistance um, in voting. Um, and we found that among voters with disabilities, 6% of in-person voters said they needed assistance in voting and 11% of male voters needed assistance. We combined the difficulties and the assistance measures to create a measure of how many people voted independently without any difficulty. And we found that five of six voters, 83% with a disability, voted independently without any difficulties, compared to over nine out of 10, 92% voters without disabilities. Um, we found among those using a mail ballot, one in seven voters with disabilities using a mail ballot either needed assistance or encountered problems in voting compared to only 3% of those without disabilities. And focusing on vision impairments, one third of male voters with vision impairments, 35%, either had difficulties or required assistance or both. So that's, a, uh, that's obviously a big number. We asked several other questions about uh, the voting experience. One was, I'll give just results of just a, a few of these. Um, perceived treatment by election officials, among in-person voters, people with disabilities were more likely to report, uh, more likely than people without disabilities to report that election officials were very respectful toward them. 84% said they were very respectful compared to 77% for people without disabilities. Um, and people with vision impairments were just in the middle there. 80% said that election officials were very respectful. The perceived respect from election officials, however, did appear to decline slightly from 2012 for voters both with and without disabilities. And we, we, uh, we speculate this could be due to the stresses of the pandemic, which 
made a lot of a pretty chaos in a lot of our lives last year. We also asked about confidence that the vote was accurately counted. Two thirds of voters with disabilities, 68%, said they're highly confident the vote was accurately counted in 2020, compared to 59% of voters without disabilities. So people with disabilities were actually more likely than those without disabilities to say they're confident the vote was accurately counted. And uh, the similar results, 69% for voters with vision impairments said they were highly confident the vote was accurately counted. About one eighth of each group said they are not very confident or not at all confident the vote was accurately counted. And the results are very similar for in-person and male voters. Um, we took this opportunity to ask people, to ask people who voted in 2020 about how the experience compared to the pre-pandemic experience. What was the ease or difficulty of voting in 2020 compared to the last time they voted before the pandemic? Overall, most voters with and without disabilities, uh, 63% and 64% said it was about the same. So not quite two thirds. Male voting seemed to help in general. Among those who voted in person before the pandemic, but with a male ballot in 2020, close to half of voters said it was easier in 2020. 50% of voters with disabilities, 53% of voters without disabilities. That figure was slightly lower, 44% among those with vision impairments who said it was easier um, last year than, uh, than the time before. Another a really interesting result is polling places appear to be more accessible. Among those who voted in polling places, both in 2020 and pre-pandemic, so both times they were in polling places, one-fourth of voters with disabilities, 23%, said it was easier in 2020 compared to 13% of voters without disabilities. Um, and one-third of people with vision impairments voted in bowling places both times, said voting was easier in 2020. So that you know, lends some uh, backup to this idea that polling place accessibility really is improving. Um, if people voted by mail both times, two thirds of those with vision impairments said it was about the same in 2020. One fourth said it was easier. Only 6% said it was more difficult in 2020 to, to vote by mail in 2020 than pre-pandemic. So um, last question that I'll go into here is preference for how to vote in the next election. Both voters and non-voters were asked, if you wanted to vote in the next election, how would you prefer to cast your vote? Close to half of people with disabilities, 49%, and three-fifths of people without disabilities, 61%, would prefer voting in person inside a polling place. So the polling place obviously still is a, a very important, very attractive option. For, for most people. The next most popular was voting with the mail ballot, chosen by one third, 32% of people with disabilities, one fifth, 19% of people without disabilities. The choices among the remaining, op remaining options did not differ significantly by disability. About one eighth uh, chose voting fully online by personal computer or smartphone. Between four and 5% chose filling, filling out a ballot online and then printing and mailing it. That's the electronic ballot delivery that, uh, uh, that Don was referring to. And 3% chose voting by drive-through or curbside. So uh, among voters with vision impairments, we took a special look at this, well, how they would prefer to vote. About half, 49% would prefer to vote in person. Over one third, 38% would prefer to vote with the mail ballot. 5% would prefer the electronic ballot delivery. 4% would prefer to vote fully online with your personal computer or your smartphone. 
and 4% would prefer to vote by drive through or curbside. So that's all the statistics I'm going to give you here. The, this is a, a lot of lot of statistics that we realize. We do cover other topics in our report. We look at the relationship of disability to non-voting forms of political participation. Did you uh, contribute money to a candidate? Did you work for a candidate? Did you uh, uh, work for another political organization? Um, we also look at political interest and feelings of political efficacy. How much do you follow politics? How much do you feel that you're able to that, that you are have the ability to participate in politics? Recruitment for voting. Did anyone ask you to vote? And then other facilitators of voting, employment, group involvement, transportation, attending religious services, education, income, all of these have been found to be important in the past. And we present some basic numbers on, uh, on all of those facilitators. So conclusion, the key takeaways, voting accessibility for people with disabilities has improved since 2012. Despite the progress, however, one in nine people with disabilities encounter difficulties in voting and they're twice as likely as those without disabilities to experience these difficulties. The problems seem to be highest among those with vision or cognitive impairments, pointing to the need for continued progress in improving accessibility and ensuring people with disabilities can easily exercise their right to vote, as Don said. So we're, welcome, we're welcoming any questions and we really want to make these results as useful as possible for improving civic participation and access to voting. So thank you. We yes. welcome any questions, as I said. Doug and Lisa, thank you so much. Commissioner Palmer, anything that you would like to add at this time, or shall we open it up to questions from the audience? Well, I'm just real briefly, I, I take a lot of, uh, you know, when I went through the report, I think there was, a, I looked at all the positive things <laughs> as a former election official who worked with local election officials to really try to train uh, folks and poll workers to, um, make the polling places accessible as possible to ensure that they understood the equipment and make sure they understood how to use it and how they could easily um, ha have it ready to go on election day. And then and then to be sensitive and be sort of friendly uh, to all types of voters, no matter the situation. The fact that, uh, you know, in those three areas, it's, there seemed to be significant progress. I'm very, I take a lot away, away from that. I'm very, very pleased. Uh, and I think that in itself made me feel very good about uh, 2020. And so uh, those are just three of the things that uh, stood out to me as a former, as an election official. Thank you. Thank you. And before we go to Q&A here, uh, Doug and Lisa, one question. You mentioned you know, roughly one in nine voters with visual disabilities. Um, I'm not a, a statistician. One in nine, that's roughly 12%, 11%. 11%, yeah. And I guess what what does that represent in terms of uh, population or total real numbers of voters? Of voters with vision impairments? Mm-hmm. <coughs> ah, excuse me. Um, well, we're estimating that there were about 2 million, um, and again, this is rough. Yes. We're, we're gonna issue all these caveats, but we're estimating that there were about 2 million voters with vision impairments last year. Um, as, as Lisa said, the, the turnout rate that we estimate is that, is that they were about 11 points, percentage points less likely to vote than, than people without vision impairments of the same age, um, which means that there's a real gap there. There's, I'm not gonna pin myself down to a specific number, but 
but there's at least several hundred thousand that, that, that gap represents several hundred thousand people with vision impairments um, who, you know, if, if they voted, they that would bring their the, the the rate up to the rate for people without disabilities. Again, we'll have we'll have this information in April when we get the census data that we can really give you exactly what turnout was like among people with vision impairments. Great, thank you. And now I'll ask our Zoom host to recognize any hands that are raised for Q and A. Yes, Alice, you may unmute. Yes, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Yes. yes. Um, I guess my question is, it, it, it sounds like, yes, we've made progress, but amongst the um, visually impaired and blind community, we've made no progress. And, and being in Georgia this year and going to new machines and having a pandemic come on, it became even more clear to me how we still have not made much progress in, in making it accessible or um, even private for that matter, because I found mm -hmm. out after I left the poll that everybody else in the room was seeing what I was doing, even though it was supposed to be set up for me as a visually impaired person. And that's really discouraging. And I guess, so my question is, what do we got to do? What needs to be done? Because we are such a small minority group, even among the disabled, to get, you know, truly an independent and private ballot? Well, I think that the uh, electronic ballot delivery system holds a lot of promise, even though only 5% of, of people mentioned it. I think part of it is that the word isn't out enough yet, but that enables you to fill out, to receive your ballot online, fill it out online and then print it out and mail it in. So I think not in Georgia. No, not a lot. Not all states have this um, this option yet. I think it's only about six. Is it six? No, no, no. It's half of them. Half of them. Okay, yeah. but yeah, no. There's a lot of progress that needs to be made. But some, you know, those kind of solutions solutions might hold hold promise in some of these areas. Well, and I want to add to this. You know, it's a great question. The um, the as you, you you were saying, well, there really hasn't been much progress for people with vision impairments. We were actually just talking to a reporter uh, mm -hmm. earlier this afternoon about these results, uh, trying to get the word out. And the reporter asked about this. And I checked our 2012 mm -hmm. result on people with vision impairments having problems in a polling place. And, and actually, the, in 2012, 44% of people with vision impairments yeah. reported difficulty voting in a polling place. And that dropped down to 24% in 2012. 24% is you know, one in Too four high. is still a, yeah. a huge number. But it does indicate some progress. And, and, and there was a particular drop, uh, as we said, in people um, uh, being able to, in, in diff, I'm sorry, particular drop in difficulties reading or seeing the ballot. So I think ballots are, are more easily able to be seen by people with vision impairments. Um, so I'm not, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna-ish. There, there's still big, big problems here, but we do have several things pointing toward, toward, pointing toward improvements, even among people with vision impairments. Mitchell, you may. Hello. Hello. Um, so I have a quick question. So as someone who voted for the first time last year, um, so I'm curious, um, how exactly does the, um, letting uh just tr the voter 
at the in-person polling places, how does the training work there? Because when I was there, it didn't appear that they knew mm-hmm. what was going on. And they, they didn't know that there was any, uh, they didn't know there was any sort of just any sort of actual um, accessible m- machines. <laughs> Even though I asked earlier in this, uh, earlier and they said that there were, so. Um, that, 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 yes. That's a great question. I yeah. actually think that's a, a good one for, for Don to answer if he could. Uh, what kind? Because of, we're not familiar with the kind of training yeah. that the election officials get specifically. Okay. Yeah. That's. I guess that's the thing is like just knowing. It probably would. I don't know. That probably would help in the sense that knowing what training they do get and what training they don't get. So, um, and I think that there might be another panel of election officials to talk more in depth about this, but most of the, there's, there's sometimes uh, the state will provide certain general uh, specific training that uh, they encourage localities to provide to their poll workers. And sometimes your locality will have uh, a disability coordinator that works on what are some of the specific training steps that have to take place for a poll worker or an election worker. So there those, those poll workers are um, sometimes experienced, sometimes they're not. Sometimes there'll be online training. Sometimes it'll be in-person training. There's a whole wealth of issues that they have to become acquainted with or oriented to. This is why I, um, you know, reading the report and the study, there is some, there is some um, positive that we can take from it. But I think it, this is a, th- what you uh, describe is sometimes uh, the experience that we hear about as election officials is that there wasn't an awareness of the voting equipment or they're not particularly trained uh, to deal with the, a voter with a disability that comes in the door. But that is the goal of most of our uh, local election officials to make sure that the polling place is ready, that the poll workers are trained and that there is somebody experienced and the voting equipment is ready to be used. And when they interact with voters with disabilities is in a respectful, intelligent manner um, and that they're not scrambling to try to um, figure out what to do. So uh, that is um, generally what uh, these folks are, are trained in. But of course, we're talking about 8,000 plus jurisdictions across the country, mm-hmm. different people are training them. But my goal at the EAC is that there's ways that we could focus on these issues, like how do we make sure, you know, what are some best practices to ensure a private um, experience for a voter with a disability? Uh, perhaps we, with the input of our uh, local election officials, can provide that best practice to the rest of the, of the country. Uh, and the word will generally get out as they, uh, you know, as they exchange best practices. Christine? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to add one other quick yeah. thing on that. It's a, it's a great question about the, the, the use of the accessible voting machines and whether election officials and poll workers are, are able to, uh, uh, to use those. We did ask about this in our survey. We asked, you know, did people use special equipment, accessible voting machines? Um, so we have a measure of that and any difficulties they had, but it was really a small handful. It was mm-hmm. just, uh, I forget, it was like maybe uh, 10 or 12 people used, used those kinds of machines. So we, so we don't have a strong, a strong evidence base there, but it, it is an important issue. And, it, and I'm sorry. Christine, uh, the first thing I wanted to say is that um, Alice's machine probably should have been set up with those uh, barriers to keep people from looking 
from around her. And there are probably instructions on that machine that told those people that she should be in a space where people couldn't look over her shoulder. Uh, but my question is about the voluntary guidelines that the Election Assistance Commission just recently promulgated that appear to not be in favor of using electronic ballot submission. And of course, electronic ballot submission to go along with electronic ballot delivery would mean uh, less um, assistance being needed by a person doing an electronic delivery ballot and mailing it in because the person who cannot see at all can't tell when they're mailing their ballot without some cited assistance where to sign the envelope or the extra piece of paper that goes with the ballot, where if you were using electronic submission, uh, you would be able to submit it. So um, I, I just want to know how did the Election Assistance Commission come up with the, what sounds to me as though they're saying uh, that election security trumps privacy and independence? Um, well, I would say that that's certainly not the case, and I certainly don't believe that. I don't believe that the consensus believes that security trumps accessibility. We really have to balance the two. I think in with VVSU 2.0, what we have is a promise that we, have, we are going to be instituting component testing for voting systems for the first time. That's going to be in our manual, and that will allow accessible interfaces with a voting system to be independently certified. And that will allow some experimentation, particularly with those devices that may not, uh, it'll be accessible in nature. We also have the innovation clause in our uh, manual for the VBSG 2.0, and that will allow um, some innovation to, to take place. There will also be the opportunity for end-to-end -end, um, with software independence for electronic machines. And the last thing I would say is there's been a debate about whether or not ballot delivery, ballot return, but primarily ballot delivery and the accessible ballot delivery, if that is under the, if that is considered a voting system under the Help America Vote Act. And there is some debate about that, but I would say that um, that's gonna be, that's gonna be debated as we move forward and whether or not certain non-voting systems should be tested or if it actually should be under the VVSG. And so that is gonna be something that we look at at the next year or two about what else if anything, should be added to the definition of voting system for the VVSG. Claire? Yeah, hi. Um, great to hear you guys from the EA speaking. Um, I just have a question. I was a little surprised by the, the results of the, the survey that so few people want to vote via electronic uh, uh, form or whatever you guys were calling it. I was a little surprised by that, that it's so much um, more predominant that people would want to vote in person. But I'm kind of curious if the reason for that might be that people know that in-person is more accessible for those of us who are blind. So we want to do what we know, right? We know that it's accessible. So I am not a statistician and I don't know how you word questions um, to get the outcomes that you want. But I was just curious if those kinds of things are considered and if in a future survey, there might be some more prodding to find out that because I'm kind of nervous that the, the outcome is going to show, oh, well, people don't care and they don't want to vote electronically, so we don't need to do that. Um, from a statistical perspective, is there ways to kind of start to prod and ask those questions that'll help provide more input? Um, you know, are, are we bad? Are we, how do I want to phrase this? Are we stuck because of the way the questions we're asking and the way they're asked, if that makes sense? No, well, no, do you want to? Well, I was uh, going to say that, that that's a really good yeah. point. It's a really good question. 
Um, and we spend a lot of time, you know, fussing over the wording of that question. Um, you know, if, if you know, if you wanted to vote in the next election, how would you prefer to cast your ballot? And then we have these five options, and we rotate the options so there's going to be no bias from you know the the order that they're presented or anything like that. Um, so 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 we, we we tried to make that question as good as possible, but, but. <laughs> we we are measuring you know how did you prefer? Well, would you prefer to you know fill out your ballot online and print it out and mail it? Um, a lot of people just aren't familiar with that. It's like what? yeah. What's going on there? I think your point is a really good one, that people are not aware of this. And if they were more aware, they might be more favorable to it. So um, for future surveys, that could become two questions. Are you aware of this option? And would you be interested in trying it? Um, we could, you know, we could clearly break that into two questions. The way it is written, we don't know what number, um, just had never heard of it before or what number had heard of it before and just weren't interested in using it. So that 5%, we need to dig down more and figure out what was going on there. Okay. Joseph? I hope that you've got a high enough response compared to the number of blind people there that are actually in the country. Um, I'm delightfully surprised that this would be covered in the census. I really worry about the level of participation that, that there isn't. I've lived in three or four different counties and whenever I go to blind associations to various groups that they have, the, the vast majority of people attending will tell me that they prefer using an absentee ballot. And they, when I bring up the, the accessible voting, they feel like I'm hitting them over the head with a a wet noodle, and so I hope we can. I hope I can do something more effective to get those numbers up. And the second area of concern is we we theoretically we're trying to get a machine that will meet the needs of people who have technical skills and people who don't. And I hope that we're we're not reaching a point that that we're getting machines that don't really satisfy the needs of, of either group. And I, I, I think that's, those, yeah. those are really good points. Um, and actually my, my preference, and this, just speaking myself, would be to develop some kind of technology where that, that's universal, where everyone votes in the same way and, and it can be used by people with vision impairments. Um, that, that's kind of the general principle the principle of universal design in, uh, in, in a lot of areas of life now, uh, that the, uh, technology should be designed to be universally used so there's different people aren't using different technologies. So that's, you know, that, that, that's an aspiration um, that, that, that uh, uh, some technologies should be developed to allow that to, allow that to happen. But I think, your, I think your point is a good one. Well, thank you very much, and I thank you for putting up with all the flack that people that do the work that you do got, you know, with all the controversy about what the results of the elections, presidential elections should or should not have been. And I don't want to get to a point where poll workers are going to become people who feel that part of their responsibilities to, is to suppress the vote of people that don't think the way that they, they do. Oh. 
but that's that's what really scares me for the future. Um, so as Howard Cosell would say, enough of my pontificating. Thank you for hearing me out. And thank you, Joe. And and that that'll have to be it for questions at this time. Again, I want to give a, a thank you to Vice Chair uh, Palmer as well as Doug and Lisa for sharing the report survey data with us. And again, folks, that is available on the DC Leadership Meetings website. Um, Commissioner Palmer, any, any closing thoughts here before we go to our next panel? Thank you so much for having us. And I encourage everybody to go to our website and, and uh, just check out our disability uh, section for voters with disabilities. And um, we're hoping to do add some additional resources, potentially personnel to um to this issue so keep uh, stay tuned well thank you so much and feel free to stick around for the next panel who i will introduce right now so now that we've received the national perspective on accessible voting from the election assistance commission supported by the survey data that was gathered and reported on from the 2020 elections. Now we're going to speak with some of the officials, the boots on the ground that were helping facilitate voting in 2020. So we have Christine Walker from Jackson County, Oregon, Amelia Powers Gardner from Utah County, Utah, and Lisa Lewis from Volusia County, Florida. And first, I just want to give a, a big welcome to you three. And first, I'll turn to Lisa Lewis and say welcome. If you could please provide a, a quick introduction for yourself. Sure. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Lisa Lewis. I am the supervisor of elections in Volusia County here in Florida, which is most people know where Daytona Beach is. So that's our county there. Uh, we, uh, I've been in office just about five years now, have worked in the office, 10 before that, so a total of 15. And I truly enjoy what I do and I want everyone's vote to count that is eligible to be counted. So that's what our office is. Thank you, Lisa. And Amelia Powers Gardner, will you please give a little background on yourself? Yeah, um, as you said, my name is Amelia Powers Gardner. I am the Utah County Clerk and Auditor. Uh, I was elected in 2018, so I've been in office for just about, well, just over two years, so sort of new, and I came into this from actually a business consulting background, had never worked in the office before, so I'm very new to this world, and I bring in a focus on processes and innovation, so that's what I ran on, and that's what I've worked to do is implement innovation and processes. Um, and I'm very passionate in ensuring that people with disabilities have the ability to vote. Um, myself, I was raised by a mother who is disabled and is vision impaired. And so um, I was the first in the country to allow a domestic population, i.e. those with disabilities, to vote utilizing a mobile device. Um, and I'm very proud of that because it enabled people like my mom to be able to vote independently. Thank you, Amelia. And it, Amelia, it was almost a year ago that you and I were on an EAC uh, panel together before last year's ACB legislative seminar. So good to be on a panel with you again. Thank you. And Chris, Chris Walker, welcome. 
Um, thank you. Thanks for having me, um, Chris Walker. I have been born and raised here in Jackson County, Oregon, beautiful Jackson County, Oregon. We're in the very southern part of the state, so don't confuse us with the Portland area. Um, there are lots of rural communities around Oregon, and uh, one thing, if you've never been here, we have a very beautiful state. If you love the nature and the outdoors, this is where you want to be. Um, so I have been elected just 13 years um, uh, as county clerk since uh, January, or excuse me, February of 2008. Prior to that, served for 13 years uh, under our uh, county previous county clerk. So I've been with county government for about 26 years, starting from the ground up, hired to the entry level position, and eventually worked my way up to uh, my current position. So really proud of that. I come from a long line of people that have um, given their heart and soul to community service. My uncle served as a county commissioner for years. Uh, my great grandfather was elected in 1912 as sheriff and subsequently in uh, 1913, he was shot and killed in the line of duty here in Jackson County. Um, but again, I'll do that sadness. Uh, community service has been a, a large part of our family. Um, I'm also committed to making sure that um, all voters have accessible options. Um, and the key is, keyword here is options. And I think as an elections administrator, we want to provide as many options as we can, not only for our disability community, but for all of our uh, voting population um, concerning elections um, um, and other, other government um, functions. So I'm really happy to be a part of this panel and um, uh, excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I'm going to go a little bit out of order here, just because we had the panel from the EAC and the data shared by uh, Doug and Lisa. I'm curious, and Chris, I guess I'll just start with you. Yeah. I'm curious if you have uh, any comments or any main takeaways from the previous panel that we just had on the, the survey data from 2020. Survey data is always good for us, and, and we surely look at that. It helps us create policy. It helps us um, at, at the legislative level be able to look at uh, new solutions. Um, but let's face it, when your feet on the ground, um, although some of those solutions might sound great in theory, when you're practicing those, um, it is a whole different world. Um, so that is why it's so important to have elections administrators, people with the feet on the ground, the county clerks at the local levels, uh, part of these fantastic panels to hear the voices of what we deal with, what in theory might be um, sound great and in, 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 in a paper, it should work. A lot of times they don't work. Um, the perfect example of that you know, for years um, since I've been um, with the county government, we have been great accessibility options, such as we've had Surface Pros, we've had iPads, we've had laptops that were distributed based on federal funding, um, Help America Vote Acts, different things like that. Um, we've had uh, desktops with all the bells and whistles. Um, and, and quite frankly, and I'm gonna be very honest about this, we never used any of those solutions, not once uh, within, our, um, within the county unit. We found that when we did talk to people, they wanted to be self-sufficient. They wanted to use their own equipment or their own devices so they could be completely self-supporting in um, conducting their business, whether it be elections, whether it be um, 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 being able to go to the grocery store, whether it being anything just to conduct their everyday lives. And although we appreciated um, the support that we got from a lot of those, we found that in reality, they weren't 
hugely supportive of the people they were given to us to support. Um, so, um, and I don't want to sound ungrateful or anything, but as an elections administrator, that has been a very frustrating part over the years is trying to find a solution that is going to assist the voters. But again, the key words are, is we feel that they want to be self-supported using their own personal devices, their own personal email, things like that. So, um, so that's what one of the key issues we found um, oh, throughout the years. Thank you. And Amelia and, and Lisa, do you have any takeaways from what we just heard from the, the EAC and the survey data? Yeah, I think Chris makes a great point when we talk about mm -hmm. you know options. And I think the one of the, the people that asked a question at the end there, and they they talked about, you know, um, you're asking people if they want an electronic option, do they even know that one's available? That yeah. is such a fantastic question. Um, you know, I I have a little bit of a of an advantage where I can just sit down and talk to my mom, and I can talk through these things with her, and she can give me her preference. Um, where sometimes we don't get time to sit down and talk through options with people, but as we do sit down and talk through options, we learn things. So, for example, my mom has used the accessible machines at the polling locations for years, and one thing that didn't occur to me: my mom is very active in the community, and she votes in every election primaries and generals, municipal and even years. And she she made a comment that when she only votes twice a year, she forgets how to use the machine, mm -hmm. right? So even though she's voting every year, <laughs> that's me. not an independent thing, right? Even though that they've, they've, we've, they've, we've got a machine at the polling location for her, it's there, the poll worker knows how to use it, but every time she still has to ask for help. And she wants to be able to do this independently, as I like to call it voting with integrity. She wants to show up to vote or, or cast her ballot in a way that she feels like a responsible adult, not like a child who has to ask for help. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people maybe don't know that these things are available. As an election official, I thought I was doing everything I needed to at first when I ordered all of my accessible machines for each polling location. Um, it wasn't until I, I had spoken to my mother that I realized that even if the person with a disability has to ask over and over again, or like one of the people commented in the panel before, how she didn't know that her everyone in the room could see what she was doing as she voted, right? I think there's there needs to be more options, but they need to know these options before mm -hmm. before we can make a good decision on on what to make available. People need to know what options there are. And Lisa, for you in Florida, how did election accessibility change um, from prior to 2020 to the middle of a pandemic in a presidential election year? Well, vote by mail really picked up. And we were one of five pilot counties to utilize the accessible vote by mail electronic system via the Omni ballot. And I will have to say out of the five counties, we had the biggest turnout for it. Uh, we had a couple that was here in Volusia County that really promoted utilizing voting by mail in the midst of the pandemic, which mm -hmm. out of 35 requests, 31 returned their ballot and they voted utilizing the accessible vote by mail ballot. So it, it helps to have the word, you know, to get out. And the same thing Amelia and Chris were saying in, in regards to the accessible voting equipment when you go in person, in the same vein that the voter is only there every 
you know, every other year, perhaps to utilize that equipment. It's the same with most of the poll workers too. You know, they have two years that they mm-hmm. getting a return on, you know, learning how to use that again. And it is just really teaching them and the poll worker to be patient with the voter and the voter in the same vein to be patient with that poll worker because they, and not very many people utilize it. So to them, it's, it is a little scary because it's electronic also, but um, here in Florida and, and I'm sure in other states also the equipment, you know, the voter can utilize the keypad or the touchscreen if they have just a little semblance of a visual impairment or even a hearing impairment to blank out that screen also. Um, plus we have panels around and we set it as totally aside from everyone else um, so that no one can see and they have the privacy to vote. But voting by mail truly did pick up in 2020. We mailed out more than we ever had before and especially to those with visual impairments because they didn't want to go out and vote in person. So we had more people vote by mail this year. Could I add and to that, uh, if you don't mind? Yes. Great. So, um, sorry, and I, I really love hearing your experiences too. It's it's wonderful to be able to communicate with an open dialogue with people. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the case of Oregon and the vote by mail, you know, we were the first uh, vote by mail state in the country, yeah. and we've actually been conducting vote by mail elections since the 80s. Of course, 1998 for federal elections is when our mm-hmm. electorate voted to make uh, vote by mail the sole way to vote in the state of Oregon. So in our experiences, we haven't had a polling place election since 1998. Um, And although our vote by mail solution around the country works so well, we're so grateful we've had it, I still feel we have challenges in providing accessibility because there is no one size fits all solution, depending on your disability. Uh, depending on where you might be at around the world serving your country or living overseas. Um, Or in the instance of us, we had unique situation happen September 8th, uh, the month before sending ballots out. Uh, We had uh, devastating wildfires that came right through the center of our valley. We had over uh, 3,000 people and we're fairly small, about 220,000 people here in the entirety of the county. But these communities were devastated by these wildfires. And of course, 10 o'clock that night, as as our towns are burning, I'm looking at my mind, it goes into clerk mode. And I said, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And I texted our state elections director at 10 that night and said, it's, we are, we are an inferno. We not only on top of a presidential solution, providing accessibility for all our voters, disability community, UACAVA voters, now we have a subsect of voters who are completely homeless uh, by no cause of their own. And, and so we really had to look at options. Um, unfortunately, Oregon law limits um, 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 electronic vote, not delivery, but the return of those ballots mm-hmm. um, only um, to UACOB voters, um, electronically being able to return that ballot. But we would have loved to have been able to roll that out, not only to our disability community, with um, like we experienced a democracy live omni ballot. Uh, we did that for one pilot and then we did two pilots with the votes app. We would have loved to have been able to provide those options to multiple subsects of voters who had unique and challenging situations. So uh, I, I loved the conversation on that. Yeah, I just wanna echo that as well. Um, 
similarly on June 28th, we had a wildfire and I had half of one of my cities mm-hmm. completely evacuated. And that city only had 30% of their ballots returned. Mm-hmm. We were two days away from a primary election. We as well, we're also a vote by mail county. Yeah. And I didn't have enough paper on site to be able to reprint mm-hmm. ballots for these people if they came to a polling location. So we are primarily vote by mail, but we also do a polling yeah. location. And I literally didn't have enough paper available to print ballots for these individuals. Now, you know, by mercy, they returned to their homes at 6 p.m. Monday night for a, for a Tuesday election. Yeah. So we ended up being okay, but the contingency is a big thing. But I wanted to further that by saying, um, one of the first people with a disability that we had vote utilizing a mobile device was uh, a lady at the time, she was 106 years old. Her name is Maxine Gramet. And when we went to Maxine's home with an iPad to have her vote, um, she one of the things that we had to have her do is we had her sign a release form to sign up to utilize the mobile ballot, the mobile voting for her having a disability. And she wasn't able to hold the pen because of arthritis. She wasn't able to hold the pen. So I just had her make an X and I watched her do it. So I said, okay, I can verify that that's your signature because I watched you make uh, make the X. Um, but that was a big eye opener for me to recognize that not everybody's disability is equal. No. Um, and mm-hmm. a vote by mail ballot may not help a person who's, who's visually impaired. Depends on how visually impaired they are. They may or may not be able, I can mail them a ballot to their house all day long. That doesn't mean they can see to mark the ballot. Exactly. And even if they can see to mark the ballot, they might not be able to hold a pencil. And in those cases, those individuals have to ask another person for help to vote. So they're not able to vote independently, right? And so, um, I, I mean, I wanna echo all of that, that, that there are other options, vote by mail is great, but for those of us that do it, we still need ways to mm-hmm. service those with disabilities. And I really think we need to be focusing on servicing people with disabilities in an independent manner. I, I like what I'm hearing here about having a, you know, a full catalog of voting options available mm-hmm. because not all disabilities are the same, not all needs are the same. Uh, and Lisa, I'll come back to you. As your county was implementing new voting systems and procedures, uh, what role did communication to the electorate play? How did you communicate these changes to the voting population? Well, I will tell you that a big portion of it, and Sheila can tell you a lot, is the um, Talking Book Library, the Florida Braille Library, sent out cards to any of their customers in the five counties that participated. So word of mouth that way really helped. And then several of the different visually impaired communities we're having meetings and I talk to a lot of them. Um, also them just having their meetings and talking to their members helped a lot. We, of course we advertised, we did the radio stations. We had them talk about it. Um, a couple, many of you may know Doug Hall, he and his wife, Nancy put out a flyer and everywhere they went, they had handed those pamphlets out to tell people about this and to let them know that this was an option because it came about just at the last minute, right before the general election, that this mm-hmm. became available for our county. And when we mailed it out and we sent out the email for those that requested it, they can vote using this electronic system online. 
but they did have to return it in person because that's what Florida has. You have mm -hmm. to return the ballot. It cannot be returned electronically, not even for the um, members of Yukawa. the overseas. Yeah, Yukawa, they could not. So um, what we did was then we mailed out a packet, a vote by mail packet, a regular packet like we would to anyone, except for those that you asked for the Omni ballot, I put a sticker right beside where they needed to sign so they could feel that raised line. Now, anywhere on the certificate, you know, this goes for anyone because people will sign them everywhere. Not everybody line, <laughs> And, you know, if it's on that certificate, our canvassing board takes it. But I did put that dot on there, a sticker, so that they could know where to sign. And a lot of people, I heard a lot of feedback from that, that they, that really helped and assisted. And I've even had people, uh, young lady, young lady, I call it, um, that was very nervous about utilizing this system. And I, we put together a mock election first so that we could let them get the feel for it. And I sent it to her and I said, just try it. If you don't want to vote that way and you still want your husband to assist you, that's fine. And she ended up utilizing the Omni ballot and she has called me about a month ago and just wanted to reiterate how much she enjoyed having that independent vote and it was strictly hers that no one else had to see how she voted. She did it all on her own and mailed it back into us. So it does give them that independence. And even though they can't return electronically, they did have a way of returning it for, and no one else could see, needed to see it. They printed it off, put it in that envelope themselves, sealed it and signed on that dot. So I've heard great feedback from the 31 that utilized it here. And Amelia, for you in Utah County, how were you able to promote and encourage the use of the accessible voting measures once implemented this year? Yeah, you know, I honestly think that's our biggest challenge. Um, we work we work hard to, but one of our biggest plans in 2020 was to utilize community events and mention it at every single community event. And obviously, we didn't have any community events because mm -hmm. 2020 was the year of no events. Uh, so we worked really hard to make sure that on a, every piece of mail we send out, whether it's a, a signature verifier or a party affiliation post letter or whatever, we, we always try to put on there uh, something on, if you know somebody with a disability, refer them to our website for their options. And our website has it prominently displayed. Every piece of mail we send out has it prominently displayed. The ballots that we send out to every voter has it prominently displayed. But I really think that that's our biggest challenge. And I would like us to continue to improve that. Um, any help we can get or any ideas we can get from communities of people with disabilities that can use that help, I would love that. We work with the ACLU. We work with the um, Disability Law Center. But with me, it's a little difficult because um, my media market is the entire, it's probably about a four county area, but I'm the only one of those four counties that gives an electronic option like this for people with disabilities. And so it's difficult for me to do like a radio ad because then that radio ad would go to four counties yeah. and <laughs> I'm only, you know, I only one yeah. of them. And Chris, if there's anything you'd like to add to that topic, otherwise I'll ask you a different question before we open it up to audience Q&A. Sure, well, you know, just, just to follow up with that, yeah, we all have challenges and it, it sounds so familiar. Um, you know, there's always those challenges and you're looking at ways to mitigate a lot of these uh, situations. And again, I can't help but push the 
uh, options. We need optional solutions, um, again, because it's not a one size fits all. One of the biggest challenges we have is with um, recognizing who our, our, our disability voters would be or who the people who need these um, um, optional accessible um, ballots. Um, unless somebody contacts us, we really don't have that open list. You know, there's no way to recognize that. And, um, and so that's always a challenge and it, it's even further challenging because in our 221,000 person uh, county, uh, we're a smaller county, but we're also larger in Oregon. Um, I have a two person full-time staff. So we rely hugely on um, uh, temporary election workers to do a lot of our jobs for us. Now we're fortunate we don't have those polling places to staff, but we do have people on site. Our biggest challenge is, is um, uh, they like us to establish accessibility teams. But quite frankly, you, when you provide, again, you have a person that comes in once or twice a year or for different elections, they don't have the knowledge and, and, and the, uh, the, the ability to go out and answer all those questions, provide those services when they're only doing it every so often. And, and given the challenge of the pandemic, we also have the um, issues of keeping people healthy. And um, so that has probably been one of our bigger challenges is providing those services. So if somebody does go out, it's usually myself to assist someone. Um, and as you know, during an election, we are just swamped with the task of, of, of conducting the election. So these are real challenges and they're real feet on the ground challenges. I hear all of you in, in, in your plight. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So, and at this point, I'm gonna save my last two questions for our wrap up at the end. And I'd like to have our host uh, recognize hands from the audience for audience Q&A. Jane, go ahead, dear. Oops, okay, I'm unmuted now. Um, uh, just a few comments. Um, I'm glad to hear, I've been using a ballot marking device, Automark, for about 14 years. And I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one that has to familiarize myself with the machine each year, because <laughs> I forget too. Um, luckily, the poll workers know me, it's the same people every year. I have to say that the first year I used it, they helped me put the ballot in and walked away. And I said, so where's the headset? And they said, headset? And uh, they didn't know what I was talking about. So um, they actually called the Board of Elections to find out where the headset was. Um, so I think what happens that I know that all the places I've gone to, I'm the only one that uses it. So the person who in the last panel um, said the poll workers didn't know what they were doing, when you're the only one that uses it, you know, they just, they, they're not used to it. And so they, yeah. they, they forget too. So it's really too bad that more people don't use it. The comment I wanted to make was, um, we're talking about um, accessible um, voting and I, New York State started with the primaries last year to do some electronic voting. And as far as I'm concerned, it's not accessible unless you can do the whole thing electronically because uh, I don't have a printer. I don't have room for one. So um, even if I did, when you print the ballot, you don't know for sure how it comes out. You know, your printer might have run out of ink or something and you don't know it. And besides having to sign the envelope, which you guys seem to have figured out that there's ways to do that. But when you send that ballot in, you don't really know if it even printed right. And so if you have to ask somebody to help you with that, there goes your independence. So and privacy. Yeah. I will go to the yeah, polls. Absolutely. I will go to the polls unless and until 
I can do the whole thing electronically from start to finish. Thank you, Jean. Uh, any of our panelists? Areas, in more rural areas, you have to ask someone to drive you to the polls. Mm -hmm. as, as soon as I turned 16, I was driving my mom to the polls. And we got new equipment um, here in the county, and I ran a mock election. And my 16-year-old niece drove my mom to the mock election so that we could have her try out our accessibility machines. Um, and that's, you know, that's not necessarily independent either. Yeah. I did the same thing when I started. Well, get me there. So. Yeah. Lisa or Chris, any comments? I, I would echo what Amelia said. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it is true with, uh, again, um, mm -hmm. about the, you know, we have people, we have different workers come in every time and to make them as experienced as the full-time staff workers, it's a huge challenge. Um, and quite frankly, we have very limited resources and um, and our mm -hmm. management team is two people. Um, so that really, and, and inc not including myself, that just really creates, um, it's it's very challenging, let's put it that, this way. And I think we do a great job at, at serving our electorate, um, but there's always things that we can do better. You know, there's, a, there's another aspect of this that uh, if you are, if you only have one person at your polling location who utilizes that accessible machine mm -hmm. or two, which is not uncommon for an election, I have a very, I have a very large county. I mean, we have almost 700,000 people that live here, um, over 300,000 registered active voters. And it's not uncommon for us to have an accessible machine, only one or two people an election uses it. Yeah. Well, that's, that almost takes away their anonymity as well. Because if you have only one or two ballots cast on that machine, it's it's you know not hard to figure out who cast that ballot, and that's a problem. I liked it, what I heard earlier on you know we need to make the way that everybody votes accessible. That's one reason why I like that I have these mobile voting options for my Ucava voters and my voters with disabilities because it increases the number of people who utilized that ballot, which means it increases the likelihood of the anonymity of that ballot. Mm -hmm. No, okay, there are always, real quick, there's always um, just to follow up with that. Um, and, and, you know, I know that the mobile voting can be, um, it's controversial. There are some uh, challenges to anything online and mobile, but I really believe we need a seat at the table. We need to have this conversation to provide that access, accessibility to provide options. That's just what I wanted to follow up. Okay, Ray Campbell, go ahead. <clears throat> Good afternoon. Uh, thank you to all of you for joining us today. Uh, I'm, I'm from the state of Illinois. Now, we don't have this issue here, but I would be curious to find out if any of your state, your jurisdictions require photo ID before you cast a ballot. And if so, how that can be made ex done accessibly in uh, an electronic uh, voting system. Um, mine does. We require a photo ID in Utah. And for um, the electronic system that we utilize, you take a picture of your government issued ID and you take a selfie. And we, do, we double check with the selfie and the, how, the photo how, ID. How, how, how do we make that accessible so that uh, people who are blind or visually impaired uh, can do it? Now, I know, some, you, know you can use IRA or something like that to do it, but not everybody has that. So I'd be I, that would be a concern I would have. So the key is they're using their own device and their own device is tailored to them and they know their device. And so it's, it's not something we've had a problem with because um, a person with a disability using their own device, they know how it works, they, they're familiar with it. Um, 
And, and that's one reason why I'm, I'm in favor of them utilizing their own device because it is tailored to them and their uses and they know it. Yeah, I guess, I guess the only thing I would say to that is getting your camera lined up can sometimes be a little bit of a challenge if you're told, especially if you're totally blind, but um, we'll leave it here. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Ray. Okay, Molly, you may ask your question. You may unmute. Hi, this is Molly. I'm from Ohio. And one thing I wanted to say is I never thought about the fact that there's only two machines in my county. So that does kind of take away from anonymity, but I still, I still really like it. And our machines has a button that you can black the screen out. So I don't know. It, it seems like we should have machines that are all the same. And then I thought 2020 was the best. We have a good uh, secretary of state accessibility person. And we did a lot of, you know, getting blind people together and giving them their options. But the one thing about voting by mail is, and I don't know if it was just in our county, but there was a lot of like, if your signatures don't match up, they'll disregard you. And that was like a real like scare to people who were afraid to go to the ballots. So that was just my uh, two comments. So there must be distant, different machines that um, that don't have that option because we did have that option to black out your vote. So no matter where you were, no one could see who you were voting for. And, and Molly, this is Clark. I know that for people with visual impairments, especially folks who are experiencing vision loss and whose vision may be changing over time, uh, I know this has certainly happened to me. My signature has changed over time. Right. So what, what was my signature might not look identical to my signature now. Um, so I, I understand and, that concern. Yeah, I mean, it, and they, I mean, they were saying that they were throwing ballots out if, if even the two signatures on your envelope and the other place, well, heck, how would I know? You know, and then, so, um, but I really like the voting in person. It, um, it, it did go really well. So, hopefully, people have a better experience. I mean. Our, our machines talked right from the start. It gave you a tutorial on where, what you had to do and where the buttons were. And so I don't know how that works in you know other machines. If I may, um, here in Florida, the accessible voting equipment that's used in person does have the button and it does give you the tutorial on there to tell you how to black out the screen and what each of the keys would mean. Uh, but in voting by mail here in Florida, our legislature four years ago actually enacted a vote by ballot cure affidavit. So if, because we were having a lot of people that would forget to sign this certificate and once that ballot was cast then it, you know, you couldn't vote again and that was your, it wouldn't be counted or their signature was different. So we have an affidavit that goes out for any of those two reasons to the voter and they actually have until the second day after the election at five o'clock to get that affidavit back in and provide um, ID verification. And if you don't have a photo ID, then it has another list of, you know, utility bill, bank statement, something that has your name on it with your address that we can verify that that is you. So we do have that in place to assist with those whose signature has changed over the years, like here's Clark. And I do use, um, Several, I have used my husband and my daughter signatures. My husband is 77, 
His signature has not changed from the day he registered to vote at 18, not once, the exact same signature. My daughter, who is 32, her signature changes every month. <laughs> and so every election, I bring her home a registration application, tell her to update her signature because she votes by mail so that it is going to match whenever it does come back in because you know our canvassing board, even someone that worked here in my office had his rejected about six years ago. And that was before that affidavit came into play. Another lady here, her son's was rejected. So, you know, that affidavit has been a real help and assistance to those who haven't updated their signature. Yeah, I think the key there is making sure that your local jurisdiction has good laws around that. We similarly to Florida, uh, we have a, a cure affidavit um, I have actually implemented a text to cure. So um, if if your signature doesn't match, and I can check up to five signatures. So I have software, we can check your mm-hmm. last four ballots or your last three ballots, your DMV and your voter registration. So we can check up to five signatures um, and we can kind of see a progression of signatures. If, if your signature has changed over time, we can see that and we can still count it. But even after that, if your signature doesn't match, we'll contact you at least twice. Uh, you'll get a letter in the mail, you'll get an email, and if we have your cell phone number on file, you're gonna get a text message as well. Um, so you'll get two to three contacts from us, and with, in Utah, you have until the day before Canvas, so that's two weeks after uh, to get us your cure. Um, but the key there is that's going to be different jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And you want to make sure that your local jurisdiction has good processes in place and that your legislature has good laws in place. And in Oregon, it's all based on state law and the administrative rules. Um, we have something similar. We've been doing it a long time. Um, um, if you have a challenge signature or uh, you forget to sign that ballot envelope, the outer envelope, um, we will send out a, um, a letter to those people that have signature challenges and they have till 14 days after the election to remedy or cure that signature mm-hmm. issue. Um, in the case of forgetting to sign your envelope, we send an affidavit with the same language that's on the ballot envelope. All they have to simply do is sign that, send it back to us, and then we can compare that signature to what's already on file in their voter registration records. Uh, and we can utilize all historic signatures when trying to make that signature match. Um, keep in mind when we do signature verification, at least in Oregon, it's based on principles of forensic verification, but we don't conduct forensic verification for signature purposes. Um, but the principles are the same um, um, within that signature training. So uh, we have a lot of the same items, just slightly different depending on the jurisdiction. All right, and I think with the the questions that we're hearing during uh, this period, as well as with the the EAC panel, as well, a lot of it goes to the the paper, right? The the wet signature when the paper is printed has my ballot been printed correctly? Um, is it? I mean, in my personal experience, I, I think this would be true that the the paper part of the voting procedure is the most inaccessible part. Uh, what opportunities are there to make voting more accessible in the future? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, great. So, so um, as as Amelia can um, attest to, um, and uh, Lisa, your experiences with it, of course. Um, 
easily accessible based on your own personal devices. We have to be open in the future to smartphone voting um, or internet voting over the internet. Keep in mind right now that the ballot marking device um, uh, in Oregon, they have to send their ballot back via email or fax. We want to see expansions on this. In fact, I have, I'm in contact with our newly elected um, Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan. We are um, just now scheduling conversations to discuss these very issues in the state of Oregon about expanding um, accessibility. I also want to challenge each and every stakeholder out there, um, our cybersecurity experts, our uh, academic community, uh, the business partners and vendors that we use and all elected leaders to embrace the we can attitude. We always hear this why we can't do something. Let's embrace the we can attitude. Um, and um, things have been plaguing election administrators uh, charged with conducting elections around the country are ways to provide accessibility. And we need to be open. We need to have that seat at the table uh, take us into consideration when you're looking at these things, working it as a team to accomplish the ultimate goal of, a pro of providing accessibility options. That's what we're here for. So let's be part of that solution. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. Um, I, I would love to echo that and say, um, one thing that people in the community for people with disabilities can do is look at if an overseas voter is allowed to vote electronically, then the people with disabilities should be demanding that they have that option as well. That's what actually allowed me to blaze this path for people with disabilities to utilize this in my state, was there's a clause in state law that doesn't say people with disabilities can vote electronically. What it says is any method of voting available to any citizen is also available to people with disabilities. So what it's doing is it's opening up saying, if anyone is allowed to vote anyway, mm -hmm. someone with a disability should have that as an option. And that's a very clean way to get a law passed that is bipartisan in support um, and that there's no reason for anyone to vote against it. So, I mean, Florida doesn't have that, doesn't have that option because you don't have the electronic return for even the overseas and military yeah. members. But in Oregon, in Utah, in West Virginia, having some sort of a clause in your state that says anyone with a disability can vote in any method available to any citizen. That is a fantastic way to start. Um, and then I really want to echo what you said, and that's that we need to stop letting someone in the academic community take away access to a ballot for someone with a disability because they don't feel comfortable with it. People with disabilities have a right to vote and they have a right to vote in a way that works for them. And we need to not let someone in the tech community or someone in the academic community take away that right or access to the ballot. Um, we need to be more stern with that and say, don't tell me it can't be done. Let me find a way. Mm -hmm. And we have solutions. Absolutely. <laughs> And, and that's true. And here in Florida, like you said, we cannot return a ballot electronically. Everyone must vote on a paper ballot. They can return it by fax from overseas or by mail. They can't even email it back in Florida. So, you know, there's some improvement that's needed here, especially for those with a disability that make that do want to vote independently. And just like, you know, Amelia, you said, it's their right 
to vote, just like it's our right to vote in person and in private. You know, it becomes hugely, it becomes a political issue rather than an yes. issue of what's for the people. And instead of letting politics guide where we're going with all this, we really need to think about what is best for the people and people given their unique situations. Yes, and there is plenty of work for ACB and our members to keep doing in this regard. And we're just, we're so thankful that we have local election officials like Chris, Amelia and Lisa who are willing to work with our members, with all voters, and especially voters with disabilities, to make the process more fair, accessible, and equitable. So Chris, Amelia, and Lisa, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation here today. Thank you for inviting thank us. You. Yes, yeah, thank absolutely. you so much. <laughs> and folks, if you would like to follow up about voting, you can always email us at advocacy at acb.org. If you have questions here on the the YouTube or Facebook live streams. You can always add comments there or find us on social media with the hashtag ACBleadership21. This concludes day one of ACB's legislative seminar. Just a, again, thank you to all of our panelists and presenters. Folks, please join the ACB Next Generation with celebrating their first birthday with a community event this evening and until our sessions tomorrow kicking off at noon eastern with the u.s access board i'll close like we do all of our advocacy update podcasts keep advocating <laughs>